0: Alright, what's up sober family? Welcome to I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, the podcast for newly sober people learning to love ourselves instead of booze. Today my guest is the one and only Kayla Lyons, an OG of the sober community and an inspiration to countless folks ranging from sober curious to alcohol free. She's the founder of the Thousand Hours Dry Movement, a newer venture called Join Soberish. And most recently, she became a vice president of marketing for Monday, a non-alcoholic drink company. Today, we're gonna be talking about what it's like to navigate life transitions when you're trying to stay soberish. And we'll get to the discussion in just a minute. I'm your host, Dana Kroll. I'm a former army chaplain who developed a toxic relationship with alcohol after leaving the military. I stayed on a roller coaster of rock bottoms, recoveries, and relapses until finally, in the winter of 2022, I found my way out of the cycle by connecting with people like you. After kissing alcohol goodbye, my goal is to never go back, but I can't do it alone, so let's break up with booze together. And with me in the studio, as always, are Al K. Hallfree, my spirit animal for sobriety, and Spruce, my PTSD service dog, who is taking a nap right down there, and I'm I'm a little bit jealous. We'll have to ask Kayla to show us her Frenchie if, if she's got him somewhere, if, if he's, he's around.
1: He's around. He's around. Okay. All right.
0: Right now. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm right,
1: well, recording the whole time.
0: It's all good. (laughs) Well, hey, before we get rolling, I just want to quickly say that if you're new to sobriety and looking for a group of people to be your sober community, please come join the I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye Sober Family Facebook group. The link is in the show notes, or you can search Facebook groups for I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. And one more person in the studio with us today is Shannon, also here from Ohio. She is another OG and uh, person that I've looked up to in my past year of sobriety. And she is here as a member of the um, I Kiss Alcohol Goodbye premium service. And so she gets to listen in and help me ask questions of Kayla. So with all that being said, ladies, thanks for being here. And Kayla, um, how are things out in sunny Southern California today?
1: I cannot complain. I believe it's 73 out today. So I'm going to go get outside after this and go work at a little coffee shop and just be glad I'm not in Ohio, no offense, guys. That's anymore.
0: no, no, it's okay. It was 70 <laughs> here yesterday and like 50 mile an hour wind. So it was nice that oh, it was warm, man. but it was like the you know, it was crazy Ohio weather yeah, that does whatever. Yeah. So um, like what uh you're down in Newport Beach, right? I am. Okay. So one of my favorite moments of my entire life, one of the best moments I had outside of like uh best moments of feeling elation outside of being like way too drunk was on a surf session at sundown at Newport beach right before I was going to fly out of John Wayne that night to come back East for something. And this is when I was in seminary a long time ago. And uh, like, I was in Pasadena for a few years, but was down that way and served and I got out of the water and I stood there on the beach and there was like nobody around. And I felt like, Ah, this lightness just come over me. The shoulders felt light. It was the most wonderful experience. So like, I'm super jealous of you that you're getting to experience Newport Beach. Please enjoy that 73 degrees coffee shop experience for all of us. (laughs) Shannon and I will be living through So listen, you've had a lot going on in the last year. And, yeah. um, we've been trying to do this, set this call up for the last six months. and I think life got crazier for both of us since yeah. then. So like, I would love for you to tell for the viewers who don't know you that well, just quickly, you know, like tell us a little bit about your story, but then, you know, tell us what you've been up to lately and, um, just how you've been kind of navigating that with your life as, um, almost are you're in your seventh year, uh, uh, since you stopped drinking, correct?
1: Yeah. So I like to. Uh, identify as somebody in recovery. I don't necessarily identify as somebody who's sober and we can get into that later. Um, but yeah, I will be seven years in recovery in July.
0: Okay. Thank you for correcting me. Cause I, as soon as I said that, I'm like, that's not the right word. This is why it's a little bit different episode for me with, because you know, oh. the, with, with where I'm at, I'm coming up on it on, uh, this week I will be a year alcohol free. And so that's like a, a big deal for me, but I know also yeah. that, um, so you were, you did do alcohol free for a while, but then things kind of started to change for you after a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you tell us, tell us some about that?
1: Yeah. Um, I think for me, uh, I, the way that I drank was always different. And I think a lot of us can relate to that, right? Um, But I was also addicted to pills. So alcohol was not necessarily my number one drug of choice. It was benzos. And then that combination was a nice sedative. Um, But for me, really, uh, what I realized after like, I mean, years and years of like extremely hardcore therapy, cognitive behavioral, dialectical behavioral, EMDR, um, just reading and doing my own research. Um, What I really came to find, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, is like the kind of drinker I was, on top of being, you know, like a binge drinker, it really like the root for me was like a self-medicator. I was at the time until I was properly actually diagnosed After I had finally stopped drinking and gotten sober in the beginning with OCD, before that I had been on all different kinds of medications for bipolar disorder, for borderline personality, for general anxiety, and obviously none of them were working because those were not my issues. And so for me, alcohol was a way to self-medicate and a way to handle my obsessive compulsive disorder in a way that was obviously quite self-destructive, but at the same time, the only way that I knew how to not exist in the world so uncomfortably that it felt like my skin was like crawling every day. Just, just waking up, um, as I'm sure many of the listeners have, have woken up and just feeling like I don't even know how I'm going to make it through the day. And so when I found pills and when I found alcohol that allowed me to step out of that kind of like horrible shell that I was living in and escape that. And obviously it's not a healthy coping mechanism, but it was a survival coping mechanism. And it is something that I needed at the time. And I I say that because I think a lot of people, like we shame ourselves, like, how did we ever get so bad? Or, you know, how did we do this? And the bottom line is like, we drank to serve a purpose, you know, like maybe again, it's not healthy, it's not safe, but it, the way that we once survived doesn't have to be how we always lived. Right. Or we can't deny that we did have good times too. So like to say that, I just remind myself, like there were many, many more cons than pros, but I won't sit here and say like, no, it didn't serve any purpose. Like I wish that it never happened because I don't know how I would have survived college and all of these other life experiences without, without that. I I don't, I don't think I would have survived to be honest.
0: Well, and tell me about that too, because you, um, this is one of the things that is so fascinating to me about your story, like you and, um, uh, Jillian, uh, for heaven's sake, I'm forgetting her last name that I had on, uh, Jill, Jill Teets, who I had on earlier this season, you know, she also got uh, like worked through her addiction issues in her twenties. And so, what was it like for you? From you know, I think you said in a previous interview that you started um, drinking and um, having issues around the age of fifteen, and it was like maybe you were around nineteen or so when the pills kind of came into the picture. Is that right? And then you drank until um, you were twenty three, and so now at the age of thirty. Um, like how, how, what was that like for you in your 20s to, to not drink all that time and, yeah. and to, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I will say, um, I always tell people like it, it was such a difficult experience. But at the same time, I've really been blessed to live two lives in a way. Um, and I'm kind of exploring my 20s now as a third-year-old. And we can kind of get into that later Um, as I have a 23-year-old roommate. And now I get to kind of, the, the pendulum went from like one end to being so hardcore. And then I was so hardcore into sobriety. And now I'm kind of in this middle ground where I'm getting to kind of relive and figure out what I like to do again. Because again, I think when some of us, like for me, like I went so hardcore into sobriety and I needed to, but I lost some of myself in there too. And then as the years went back, um, trying to figure out like, who am I? Like, what do I really like? Or, and it's not just about alcohol too. It was about like my anxiety and my OCD and what I was actually comfortable with as a person versus like, oh no, I don't like to do that. Or I can't do that. Like example concerts for a long time. I was like, oh yeah, I I loved them when I was drinking and, and using and then swinging the other pendulum. And I was like, absolutely not. I can be nowhere where there are drinks. And then as the years have gone by, I've kind of come to this place where I'm like, I actually really enjoy music and concerts. But for me with my OCD, I get very overstimulated with big crowds and loud music and things like that. So I have to find a happy medium of like going to a jazz lounge or going to a place where I'm not like, you know, Coachella is a no for me, but like maybe a smaller venue, um, things like that, where you just, you become very aware of, um, yourself and your needs. And so, but the back basically to your, um, original question, it was, it was hard because, you know, it was 2015 when I went to rehab, I left school after being court ordered to treatment. Um, and I came out and I originally, you know, I went in there thinking like, whatever, this is like 30 days. Like I was a total fucking asshole. Um, and I'm literally in a track suit. Like <laughs> I haven't had a drink for two months. Like this is fine. It's 30 days, whatever. Like it was that or three months in jail. So obviously like I'm gonna, because I'm a white woman and I'm privileged, you know, and I, I got a, arrested multiple times in Virginia, um i i had the privilege unlike i think a lot of people to choose between going to treatment and going to jail and i just like to point that out because not everybody gets the choice um mm-hmm. so of course i went to treatment and i really didn't take it seriously you know um but it did plant a seed because i was 22 um and but i i knew when i left because i was you know 30 days totally clean totally sober Absolutely, the worst fucking three days of my life coming off benzos because my ignorant ass went into treatment thinking, like, oh, well, I'm prescribed these and I was taking Clonopin. I'm prescribed this. So, like, it's totally fine. They're going to keep me on these. And then they were like, yeah, no, you can't have that in here. Oh, and no. I was like, okay, I know what happens when I don't take these for like two days and it's not pretty. Yeah. So, that was a pretty gnarly detox. Um, But I did come out knowing one, I couldn't go back to Blacksburg, which is where my school was, Virginia Tech, because I would absolutely not be able to stay sober. And I did, it. I was not 100% ready, but I did know that I what that this is what I should be doing. Like being, I went to recovery and I went to treatment in Los Angeles, which has a really great young people's Alcoholics Anonymous group. Like, I mean in general has a great aa in in la but especially for young people it was the first time i had met other people who understood me on that kind of a level and it's not to say i didn't drink with other people who drank like i did because like i was a big sister in a fraternity i purposely surrounded myself with other people who drank like i did because then i wouldn't be called out you know it was very normal for people somebody's vomiting, somebody's getting arrested, somebody's throwing a hammer through a wall, like maybe it's me, maybe it's someone else. Um, but I remember sitting in my first AA meeting and sharing, um, and just being like very radically honest about like why I was there and, um, and that, like, I, I was trying as as much as I could to be open to to the opportunity, but just knowing for a fact, like, I don't know what I'm going to get out of this, but I know that, like, if I was a normal drinker, I wouldn't be <laughs> here. Um, and so I didn't go back to school. Um, I did. I spent like another year, kind of just like bopping around, living in North Carolina for a little bit with um my boyfriend from college. Um, that didn't go well. <laughs> And then ended up back in California, um, and kind of just spent a year in what is now considered right. Like the sober curious phase, mm-hmm. um, there wasn't really a word for it then. Um, but I was also dating another addict. And so I think it was the first time that I had gotten a bit of a taste of my own medicine, to be honest with like, he'd be like, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. And then he like would be gone for three days. Cause he was on meth. Um, you know, just like crazy, crazy shit happening. You're familiar with Bakersfield, California. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, And um, yeah, just I think for me, I had a, a, a yet a, I've had so many like horrible nights that like I think I would hope that most people would be like, wow, OK, I'm done. And no, but I had another yet again, another really horrible night broke into a hospice. Like that, that was one of the things I did. And, uh, I finally had kind of the, like, like the moment you were talking about when you got out of that ocean, you know, you have this transformative moment, maybe it feels like flow, but like, for me, like it was that spiritual awakening of like, you can keep doing this, but you're going to, you're going to end up in a trunk. You're going to end up, you know, overdosed and dead and have been, God knows where, you know, like, how did you go from where you were, you know, in, in high school, you know, I was, I was a top athlete, I was getting good grades, like everything. And I was still, I was still drinking. I mean, don't get me wrong. My drinking was bad in high school as well, but I had not like when, when you added the pills in, it was just like, no going back. If anybody knows, like that is a horrible ass combination to be on, um, yeah, I think it just I had that moment um and luckily for me like I said I was living in LA at the time and because the seed had been planted I knew I could call the people from my rehab so I called somebody and they told me to come to a meeting and that was like July 22nd 2016 um and that was like what I consider my recovery day. Like that was the, that was the day that that version of me died and that this version of me, and there's been so many, like, I I forget who said it, but it, there's a, a, a really like powerful quote that always stood with me. And it just says like the, the man I am today stands on top of the bodies of all of the dead me's before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's kind of how I feel like that was the first death of like a really big part of myself that needed to go. And I've had so many evolutions since then in the past six and a half years. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it, it, I knew I couldn't do it anymore.
0: What was your vision for yourself in the future? Like at that point, like, could you imagine yourself where you are today exactly. i mean I, maybe that's kind of a cliche question but i'm curious to hear like what what do you what do you think it was like back on july 22nd 2016 looking ahead
1: i honestly i had no idea i think i just knew i wanted to live because for me and the way that i was using i was not going to i was i had overdosed before again i was in a very Um, dangerous relationship with a dangerous person doing dangerous things, um, and thinking and romanticizing it, you know, again, I, like, I wasn't joking when I said I was going to end up in a trunk, like this motherfucker that I was dating was a bad, not a, not a good dude. Um, and I, I, think for me, like it was like literal, like, and I'm sure you've heard it before. If you listen to my podcast, that moment for me was being stuck in traffic on the grapevine in the middle of the fucking mountains, no Wi-Fi, no music coming down. And I have like this big, and it just was so like, you know, core memory. I have this huge cup of like, you know, we've all made it right. Like you go to McDonald's and you get like half Sprite, half Gatorade, whatever, you know, you're like, all right, this will like help keep whatever it is down. Nothing, nothing stayed down. So I'm literally in my car just vomiting in this McDonald's cup like can't go anywhere because there's wildfires happening. So like a normally a two hour drive turned into like a five hour drive. And it was like my own personal purgatory in that moment where I was like panic attack after panic attack. And I had no drugs on me. And I obviously I didn't have any alcohol on me. And I like literally just fucked over my whole family. Like I said, broke into a hospice. My grandparents died two days later. Like it was the, the whole situation was so fucked. And I think that I realized like, I'm just, I, I just, I, I think it's so hard to articulate to people because you, when you are ready, you have this feeling. It's like an awakening, just something, this, a, a flip of the switch. And I wish that I could tell you, you have to drink this many drinks. You have to have this many years, like, but for everybody, it's so different, but there's just something. And it I will say there is some science behind it. If you can read about it in the biology of desire by Mark Lewis, but he talks about, it's like this threshold of disgust that we all have for certain things. And that's where I just reached mine. Like for some reason, whatever it was that final night was just, I hit my threshold and like, they talk about it and, you know, traditional programs, like it's like just, I'm, I get it the fuck away from me. I cannot imagine drinking it anymore. And even in the weeks building up to that, I was still drinking, but like not enjoying it at all. I just was like sipping on this, like, Oh, like, why am I doing this to myself? I I don't understand, but I didn't know how else to live. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was rough. I mean, that's why I, I think if, if I had gotten sober, let's say I was 22 now, I don't necessarily think I would have done traditional programming, but that's really all that was available back then. Mm -hmm. So I got very, very deep into the program uh, which saved my life. I got very, very close with other people in program. Um, and that's, you know, I take a lot of, of what I brought into a thousand hours dry and then reframe and now soberish. Um, I, I took all the, all the things that, that AA had instilled in me and I took those. And then like they say, and I left the rest when I left the program. And that was about two and a half years into my journey when I had just felt like, this isn't working for me anymore.
0: Has there been any blowback against you f- for, you know, kind of the, the path you've taken with being soberish and, you know, with the microdosing and with the other things that you've, uh, you know, um, branched out into as you've matured in your, in your, um, recovery period here. So
1: surprisingly nothing to my face, but I say that because I I'm sure, you know, like I love sober IG. But people are bitchy, um, and and it, it's more again. And I think it's it'll hit me more when the book comes out, which will come out in September, um, because it is a more nuanced approach. And even though right, like now, I believe I think I have. Let me look. Pulling up the I am Sober app, so I have seventy five days alcohol free today. Um, I think for me, like I've done my whole life, like, and I think a lot of us are very, you know, rebellious and gritty. Um, I, I'm not going to keep doing something that's not working for me, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I, and I had questions from the beginning, you know, and again, like I, I have only love for the program because This group of people who had no, like no reason to really help me or anybody did, you know, like they, they take their time, they share their space. Like, that's what I love about the program is that like, it's a totally free space for you to go and hold space for others and share your story and learn commitments and learn responsibility and accountability and feel like you're part of something yeah. and that you're not alone. Um, and I took so much out of that, but then there were other things, you know, as an agnostic, I couldn't really get into the higher power stuff. And I did not believe I was powerless over alcohol. I knew there was something deeper, and I'm not a proponent of the disease model of addiction. So, but again, there was nothing really happening outside of there. And I I knew and was told, you know, that if I left, I was gonna go back to how I was before and that scared the shit out of me. So I stayed. Um, and then it really wasn't until I heard somebody else sharing that they didn't go anymore, uh, that I was like, Oh my God, I can leave. Like what? (laughs) Um, so I left and yeah, I got, um, from my people, from my friends in program I did, I was kind of outcasted. I lost a lot of friends because, and again, that's kind of why I took the word dry into a thousand hours dry, because it is a. It has a negative connotation in traditional programs. It means somebody who's not working their program, um, which ironically, it's not that I wasn't. I had done my 12 steps many times. I had worked with a sponsor and I hadn't even talked to my sponsor about leaving. And she said, you know what? As long as you go and find something that works for you, it doesn't matter. And I, I thought that was so cool that, you know, this person who had 11 years, you know, was telling me, like, do what you got to do. Um, And that's all I needed is, was, was a permission, you know, to take that next step. Um, But it it was hard, you know, because that was my entire world. Like almost all of my friends, like outside of going back to school and, and working my job, like AA was my life, you know, but that's not healthy either. You know, I realized now it was kind of a replacement, you know, like alcohol pills for meetings, for calling my sponsor, for, for these kinds of things. Um, and I, I wouldn't really consider myself, I, I w I wasn't doing a lot of recovery in the first year and a half too, because I was still in a relationship with somebody in active addiction. I was still doing things that weren't very, uh, weren't very good. Um, but when I was finally able to leave that relationship and I was finally able to kind of forge my own path, um, and really get deep into therapy and doing a lot of reading about the brain and addiction um, and kind of doing my own little uh, you know, research, so to speak. Um, I stumbled onto the idea of just creating my own community. You know, if, if nothing's there, you got to build it. Like I, I'm not the kind of person who's going to wait around for somebody else to do something. Uh, I'm very of the mind, like, well, if I don't do it, maybe nobody else will and maybe that's not true right like but i think that's the mindset i've always i've always had it's just like might as well do it myself
0: <laughs> well and talk to me about the the latest evolution of what cuz you know there was 1000 hours dry and then you did, did so much at at reframe and then now have progressed into soberish like what what is the what is this next level what's you know Kayla 3.0 like
1: so i think for me and why there if if you if you know all of my you know platforms and, and my past and you see well what is the difference like wh- what makes you know the dry club and reframe and soberish stand out um to other places and for me it was really important at all of these places to be super inclusive to all types of people in the community and people checking out the community people who are window shopping right like the sober curious or people who are not yet ready and and just kind of watching. Um, I knew as like a former addict, that there will always be a place for somebody like me. I can always go back to the rooms. I can always go back to treatment, right? But there's a whole much, much larger group of people who will never feel comfortable going to a meeting, who will never feel comfortable uh, labeling themselves as an alcoholic or as an addict, or they're never going to be bad enough. And I put this in quotations because everybody's bad enough is different, but maybe they're not going to have a, a physical reason to go seek inpatient treatment or outpatient treatment. So we have this whole massive group of people who are moderate alcohol use disorder, I would call who had nowhere to go, you know? And so it occurred to me, um, from a thousand hours dry and then on to reframe and why it was important for us to have the cutback track and the sobriety track was because not everybody's ready, you know, like, and there should be a place for people like, why is there no waiting room, so to speak? It doesn't make sense. Um, And I, again, I talk about this in my book with like the birth, there's a, a, a part called the birth of binary sobriety. And it goes really, really far back I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years, but again, it's just this societal idea that we have that sobriety has to be black and white. And I love, there are a few people I follow on Instagram who share my, my view where it's like, why is it that every other disorder, eating disorder, sex, food, any other addiction is not a black and white issue but alcohol and drugs are now I understand we can abstain from these things. We can't abstain from food. Right. That makes sense. But at the same time, and, and I think uh, Jeff just made a post about this, but it was just like, what again, like why is, why is a U D and S U D the only disorders where, like, if you fuck up a little bit, like you are totally out. You totally have to to start over. Like you are not on recover anymore, you're not sober anymore. And I just like, I was so like as somebody who was studying psychology, I was like, this doesn't make sense. Like behavioral psychology has proven that punishment based like behavior stuff doesn't work, not in the long term. And so I wanted to create a space and continue to create a space that was more inclusive, that was more positive. And by no means, am I saying, yes, you should go out and relapse or yeah, you should go out and drink. Um, I'm creating a space for people who, when that happens, they don't feel so scared that they can't come back. And I've had so many friends go out and be too ashamed to walk back into a room and have to go up and take a 24 hour chip after they have two years, Um, you know, or they get fired from their job uh, because they let, you know, they work at a rehab. And then they're left with nothing. And I've had friends go out and and die because of that. And I wanted to make sure that everybody who came to my community, who, you know, came who found the reframe app and now, you know, who will read soberish can feel like they picked up a book that the person who wrote it or, you know, the, the person behind the community wanted them to feel part of, like, that was so important to me because again, even in traditional programming, I didn't necessarily feel like I fit in hundred percent. And so I wanted to create a space where somebody like me could feel like, wow, these are my people, you know, like it's okay if I make a mistake or if I want to branch out or if I'm trying something new, um, it's about my intention behind it. And it's also, again, going back to traditional programming, I, am, am I being radically honest with myself and with others about my intention and about what I'm doing? Um, and that's initially why I created these spaces. And, and with Join Soberish, um, I'm kind of even going this level further um, and making it a safer space for people who practice harm reduction, because I don't I don't know of a space that does. And that's not to say, again, that I'm saying you should go out and drink. Or if if you're already sober, like, you should go moderate. Like, you got to recover the way that heals you, right? Like, that's it. But I will say I'm a huge proponent and advocate for harm reduction. Because I think as a lot of us know, like, when we were in active addiction or active drinking, no matter what the fuck you were going to say to me, I was not about to stop. I didn't, I lost relationships. I lost friendships. I mean, just so much. I didn't care. And I'm watching it happen now with people I love and it doesn't matter. Like, that's not going to stop me. And so this idea that, oh, you know, if you put up these rules or something, like it's going to, (laughs) no, I don't think you understand the the, the way our minds work. Okay. Like if I want to drink, I'm going to get a fucking drink. I'm going to find it in the trash can. I'm going to find it, (laughs) you know, like I will walk. 10 miles. It doesn't matter. I will drink vanilla extract. I don't care. Um, and so for me, it's like for people who are in that waiting room, you know, who are trying to cut back, but who just can't seem to get a hold of it yet. Right. And maybe they're not ready to admit to themselves in the stages of change that they need to be, sober, right? Like maybe they're trying to cut back, but it's going to take them continuing to learn more about alcohol and continuing to hear other people's experiences to go, Oh, that sounds like me or, Oh, okay. You know what? I've done all the things, the check boxes, right? Like at reframe, this is what I used to tell people when I ran meetings, when they were cut cutting back, as I said, you know what? If it's been three months and you've been on our program and you're doing all of the things we're telling you to do on the cutback track and it's not working, you might be somebody who can't moderate. That's not to say it can never happen for you in the future, but for some reason, you have not reached the root of the issue. And so if drink stacking and... um you know, making a mixed tail, which is basically you know doing a half and a half, or you know cutting down the amount of drinks you're drinking in a week. If all of those things that we're telling you to do are not working for you, there there's something, there's other layers happening there. And let's take away the alcohol, and then let's work on the real issue. And then after that issue is actually, um, you know, resolved, <laughs> then you can take a different look at alcohol and go, do I want to even get back into this relationship, but you don't have to worry about that right now. You can just know that that's later down on the line. But I think in order for people to come to that, you know, you have to give them a space, like a safe space and a loving space and a positive space to do that. You can't just tell them, Oh, well, cutting back doesn't work, you know, because it does work for some people. So that's not true. You know, um, you have to like the way i think about it is kind of again i'll i'll go back to the waiting room reference is just give them a place to figure it out for themselves that's safe that's also giving them the knowledge that they need to build smarter habits so when they are ready they're more prepared than they think you know teach them give them resources help them understand and then when they are ready if they become ready they can make the transition and it's really their decision It's not forced. It's not, because that's, we all know that too. Like there's, I've gotten sober many a time for a boyfriend or for my parents or something else. And it doesn't last because it's not authentic. Um, And I think for me at the end of the day, like it's about saving more lives. Alcohol being the third number, you know, of the third highest preventable death in the USA is obscene. You know, like it's actually fucking crazy. And so for me, like high level, I would like to save more lives. And if that means promoting harm reduction and helping people just drink less, whether it's permanent or maybe they turn into sobriety, then absolutely, fucking I'm going to give them a space to talk about what's going on with them and make them feel like they belong somewhere because they do. And same thing with other drugs, you know, like other countries are doing it, providing spaces for clean needles, you know, providing spaces for people to use because there is some gnarly ass shit out there going on. And, you know, like if somebody's going to use, they're going to use, like you might as well make sure that they're not doing it and overdosing and dying or giving each other diseases and stuff like that. And I think. There's such a closed-minded view around it. But at the end of the day, like for me, it's about informed consent. As an adult, once you turn 18 here, you can do whatever the fuck you want with your body. I don't care. But you should know all of the consequences and all of the negative con. Like just everything you should, you should have informed consent, meaning you should know what you're getting into. And we just don't have that obviously around illegal drugs, but not even around something that's legal alcohol. You know, the information is kind of blockaded behind peer-reviewed studies that only people with license numbers can get into. Uh, it's in this language that a normal person is not going to understand. So how can we create and get that information and make it super digestible for the average person to, to understand what that means? And then they can go and make their own decision about how it's going to affect their lives. Um, you know, we're, we're a democracy here. I'm not trying to take, I'm not, I'm not interested in a prohibition. I know it would never work. Like, you know, I'm not anti-alcohol alcohol. Alcohol, It it's a drink at the end of the day, you know, like we are still human and take away alcohol. We're going to, we're going to use something else. We're going to have a different vice.
0: So. Shannon, what, is there anything that you wanted to ask? Cause I wanted to give you a an opportunity here. I know that you and Kayla kind of go way back, but I would love to hear w- what you would want to, want to pipe in here in the conversation.
2: I could talk about her for an hour. So, <laughs> I mean, I'll really, really go real small because you um, you allowed me to come in here and, and listen to Kayla. Cause this is, it's a huge privilege for me. Um, I ran into a podcast Kayla was a, a guest on right at the beginning of when I was at home with my three kids and all the internet, all the crazy with COVID. And I heard her speak of sobriety, sober, curious, um, all the questions. It's nothing I'd ever heard of before. I had questioned my alcohol use for years and I had no terminology for it. It didn't resonate with being an alcoholic. That wasn't something that, that sat with me well. And I followed her for two years before I decided to become sober and her gentle ways and, and the way she did the thousand hour dry movement and, and Instagram was amazing because she was right about that waiting room because I was one of those people in that waiting room. And I don't think I could have done this if I didn't have somebody like Kayla telling me there was another way. And it was huge. And I'd like for her to share for people that are listening, her philosophy as she can on, on shame because we discussed that she and I uh, through Instagram and how, um, how you can let that shit go. And some of the things that she has given me her tidbits and her nuggets. And I mean, she's, gosh, she's like 20 years younger than me. Um, It's been amazing. It really has been amazing. And having her in my life has been just a huge privilege. So what you told me and what we talked about and discussed with shame and how you can let that go and, and how some of dots still there, would you mind sharing them with that with somebody that might be like me, that, um, that doesn't know, you know, doesn't know that they have that
1: choice. Does yeah. that make sense? That question. Yeah. <sighs> so many, so many kind words. I'm like, I feel so warm right now. Cause I, again, like right now, like you said, I'm, you know, I'm working in the non-alcoholic business. It's a whole different level. Like I'm getting to normalize not drinking in a, in a more fun way. Right. Um, but I'm not necessarily getting the same feedback that I did at reframe. And that was kind of like what was lighting my fire. So I'm finding a different way to do that, but just, you know, so I remember what, what you were talking about. I don't know if I'll, be able to remember everything I said, but, um, for me, and I think again, right. Like what keeps a lot of us in the waiting room is, is the shame of like all of the things that we've already done and myself included. Right. It's really hard to say, like, I am worthy and deserving of getting sober when you just like, for me, like, you know, when you just like peed in a closet last night and like broke somebody's nose and, you know, or like got bailed out of jail or, you know, woke up strapped into a hospital bed. Um, And it feels like you're in this like endless cycle of like apology, apology tour, shame cycle, feeling maybe a little bit worthy. And that comes up and you question it and then alcohol appears in its way and you get sucked back in. And it's just like this endless (laughs) cycle. And so it's like, well, how do you break it? And for me, it was realizing and it was reading a, a ton on like Wayne Dyer. And he, he he's a take it or leave it person. Like you either like somebody like him or you think he's a fucking nut. Um, he's very philosophical, but he is a huge teacher for me um spiritually. And for him, something... I had never heard before. And something that I take from his teaching and, uh, kind of regurgitate is just the idea that like, you are worthy just because like, there's no reason, like you, the no amount of productivity, no amount of service, no amount of money, whatever, none of that matters. Like you are worthy and deserving just for being here. Like you were born and that's all that is, that's the minimum. There's no other minimum. And I think so many of us are like the way that we're brought up, we are programmed and it's, and I'm not blaming anybody. I think generationally too, there's so much generational trauma that we just pick up and we continue to push over from our parents and from their parents and you know, it, it gets, it's so deep and it's so ingrained. um. But kind of trying to get out of that cycle and realize like, okay, well, yeah, I, I did do all of those things. I'm going to own them because I think for me, the, the way that I was truly able to step into my recovery was by owning that I did all of those things. Like, and that's why powerlessness didn't work for me because it if I was powerless, then I wasn't accountable. But if I was accountable and I said, you know what, I did all those things. It doesn't mean I like them. It doesn't mean that I was myself when I did them, but I have the power now. And I choose now I have the choice to wake up every day and choose to do something different and choose to live differently and choose to do one good thing you know, kind of put one penny in the jar, so to speak, for humanity and give back. And it's not even a karmic thing like, oh, well, you know, I fucked up like 382 times. So I need to do 382 really good things because it would probably be way more than that. But uh, it, it's, it's understanding. Uh, yeah, you're just you're inherently worthy and deserving of a better life just because you are here like that. That's it. And then if you're worried about like, well, I did this and I will, well, I did that. And, and what I tell people when I remind people is like the first and the best thing you can do for anybody else is to get better. Like that's the bottom line. You're not going to be able to contr- contribute. You're not going to be able to put pennies in the jar. You're not going to be able to do any of that stuff that you want to do. Um, and, and, and apologize from a real place until you change your behavior and until you start making new actions and again that's something kind of that goes back to more traditional programming with like the fourth step and with apologizing and why they say like gotta wait a certain amount of time because I think a lot of us want to immediately just go and apologize for all these things we've done and reach out to all these people who we hurt um and show everybody how different we are but like it takes time like an understanding and when it's easy enough just to think of somebody in your life like who has hurt you or who has lied to you or who has betrayed your trust and think okay well if they showed up and just said well hey i'm sober now so like do you forgive me like fuck out no. <laughs> i want to see action i want to see you know behavior changes the best apology is like that's so true and so you will find self-forgiveness so much easier once you stop self-harming. And again, it's so hard to do all these things because we just inherently by society are told we're not good enough. Maybe our parents instilled that in us that you know like you could always be doing better, you're not productive enough, you know, maybe we didn't get as much love as we should as a child. But again, it goes back to this is where we have to learn how to validate ourselves because there are plenty of people in our lives who are never going to validate us in the way that we want to. And we all know we can't, you know, (laughs) I wish, but we cannot, you know, change the actions of others um, or control them. We can only control uh, how we react to their actions. And so it's, it's just kind of, it's almost like a little fake it till you make it. Like, I'm not saying you're going to get sober and all of a sudden you will be shame-free and everything will be great. It's actually probably going to be worse in the beginning because like scientifically your baseline is going to be fucked. Mm -hmm. But, and the way that I kind of explain it is like, imagine you're, you're already suffering now. Like if you're currently drinking or if you're currently trying to cut back, I know that you're not happy, but if you can quit and it's, Another really good book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a really deep one. It's about the Holocaust. Um, but it explains uh the labeling theory and it talks about like how to put meaning to your suffering. And it's the same reason, right? Like if your arm hurts really bad and you don't know why it hurts, you're you're like way more anxious about it and upset, and your mind is racing. But the minute somebody is like, oh, well. Don't you remember you like hit it on that thing yesterday? It's like there's an immediate like relief of like, oh yeah, totally. Like that's why it hurts. And not saying it's gonna make it hurt any less, but all of a sudden you're washed away and you're kind of reminded, okay, well, like I know where this came from. Okay, and it's probably gonna you know hurt less in a couple of days. I'm just gonna put some ice on it. You you now have a meaning to the suffering, right? And that book obviously on a much deeper level explains when you can put meaning to your suffering, you can get through anything. So I tell people like you will suffer, especially if you are are an addict or somebody who's physically dependent or heavily emotionally dependent, but the suffering will not last forever. And then you will never have to suffer at that level again, ever. So it's almost like this roller coaster of like you're teetering on, this super low level and just like living the the low almost the lowest quality of life possible if you can go a little bit lower and stop what you're doing and just ride that fucking wave and it's it's the the wave you have been uh, you know avoiding of all these feelings and all of the trauma and all of the things that you have not been addressing that will hit you like a fucking tsunami let it hit you. Stop avoiding it. Like the only way out is through. If you can just take that and you will cry and it will be uncomfortable and you will think about using and you will, but you will have a toolbox, the toolbox, like there's one in reframe. There's one literally following people on Instagram. There's, I I can talk about, you know, toolboxes all day. And and that's really what my book is going to be about. It's a toolbox. But if you can find some healthy coping mechanisms to just make it through that time and I would give it a time limit, but again it's different for everybody or maybe you experience the pink cloud, it just depends. But if you can get through that that's that short time period and use your healthy coping mechanisms instead of the drinking or the using, meditation, breath work, going to meetings, that any kind of meeting, going to therapy, you know, taking prop, like taking supplements, obviously talk to your doctor about them, but you know, there's so many supplements now that are so good, GABA, l theanine 5-HTP, um, because you're, you're not you yet, right? Like you're kind of like a ditto, if, if you guys know Pokemon, like you're kind of just a blob, like you're not really formed yet. You're just kind of like, ah, I'm this pink blob, um, <laughs> which is a terrible metaphor, but- <laughs> That's how I kind of felt, right? Like in 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 the, in the beginning, I was like, I wasn't a person anymore. I was just like this blob of like dysregulated emotions and anger and resentment and self-hate and just like so unhappy. But I was like, you know what? If I can just fucking tough it out and I'm going to keep going to meetings, like for me at the time, right? I'm just going to go to a meeting every day. I'm going to call my sponsor every day. I'm going to look at my reflections and I'm it's going to get a little bit easier. And for me, I'd also done exposure therapy, which is similar, right. In the past for my panic attacks. So I knew it, it's basically like you are going to face your worst fucking fears and you're going to stare them right in the face and you're going to spit in it. And it's going to be so fucking hard and so scary, but you can do it. And then once you're on the other side of it, you don't have to deal with that again, not on that level ever. And, and I think knowing that for me is what allowed me to, again, right? Put meaning to my suffering as I lie in bed. And literally for me, I don't think I slept after I got out of rehab. I think I slept maybe like two to three hours a night for like five or six months. Like it was quite suicidal because I just was withering away as a person. I could not leave the house. I was completely agoraphobic. Um, But I kept just thinking of my future self, this future self that I had envisioned and manifested for myself, right? The future self that I think even as a little girl, like I'd always thought I would be and that I had completely lost in drugs and alcohol. And, you know, for me, other things, eating disorder, codependency, you name it, I had it. Um, And I just, I used that and that's what pushed me through the difficulty. I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this right now. I don't want to do anything. I'd like to be able to sleep, but I can't, I mean, Ambien wasn't working for me, nothing. Um, I just kept writing these letters to myself in the future. Not like so far, but just like six weeks from now. And I'm like, I wasn't eating. Like I was, I was so, I mean, I was so thin. I was so, I was shaking all the time. Like benzos are horrible. Like, I would never, ever, ever, ever recommend taking them if you don't absolutely fucking have to. Like, they are gnarly. Um, And I just, like, I was so triggered by everything. The only thing I could watch on TV was the cooking channel. Like, literally. That's how, like, I I literally was absolutely out of my fucking mind. Um, But I was doing dialectical therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. And one of the things I learned there was, again, like, don't do it for you now because you don't love this version of you. You don't think this version of you deserves anything. Do it for the future version of you that you that you do look up to. That higher version of yourself that you imagine that you can be, you just haven't gotten the opportunity to be. So I envisioned her in my mind. And then I started to take these really small steps to get closer to her what would Kayla in six weeks do? If I do this today, if I walk for the treadmill on 10 minutes, if I go outside and I take one step further on the sidewalk to get to the mailbox today, you know, if I, if I get in the car and I just sit in the car, even if it makes me cry, like that is pushing me towards this higher version of myself. Um, And Kayla and six weeks from now will be able to look back at me now and thank her and, and with gratitude. And that's what pushed me. And so I, I, you know, ate a little bit more every day. I, I went out and, you know, I was taking personal training with my mom and like, I wouldn't let her leave without me, but I just kept taking these steps and pushing myself and being more uncomfortable and more uncomfortable and, uh, and learning. I didn't die. Like that was really the whole thing is like, I had to keep pushing myself to be able to do things because my mind just kept telling me like, you're going to die doing that. You're going to die. Like, and I was not going to die doing any of this. Okay. Like, but that's where, how high my anxiety was. And so again, it's, it's a form of exposure therapy that I would recommend if you have insurance doing with a therapist, but also it's just, it's challenging your mind and your thoughts because just because it's a thought doesn't make it a fact. And so it's something I ask myself that often now, all the time, is like, well, is this a thought? Is this a truth? Or is this a is this a fact? Most of the time it's a thought. And then again, you know, like with meditation, I just kind of allow I like pop it. Okay. Thought. Goodbye. Doesn't mean it's not going to, you know, maybe it's still there. But at least now I'm aware. All right, well that's not. It's not a reality, right? Um. Sorry, that was like really long winded.
0: You don't need to be sorry for anything because that was awesome. <laughs> like I, I almost hate to like interrupt you if you want to keep going.
1: <laughs> no, I mean it's just, you know, like you said, I think goes back to like, did I imagine I would be here? No, fuck now. Like, I I knew. I just knew I didn't want to be a waitress anymore. And I didn't want to date somebody who was a meth addict who was selling guns. And I didn't want to like live with my aunt and uncle and wake up every weekend. Literally, like I, I knew every Sunday for me was like basically a, a self-induced like stomach sickness because I was just like, and Saturday too, usually like, but again, I, w- I was not an everyday drinker, but I was like balls to the wall, like. If I'm gonna drink, I'm gonna drink. Um, I'd probably really like that like really horrible TikTok challenge going around, which is disgusting. I can't believe that's a thing. Um, but I I was just like it was there's so I just call it self-harm. Like it was so masochistic back then. And I just really hated myself. And it it makes sense now. I've done all this work around it and I understand. Right. Like it come, it came from somewhere. And I think finding where it came from was so empowering, but you have to do the work to do that. You have to do so much reading and journaling and therapy and transformative work. And it doesn't have to be therapy. Again, that's part of my book and the tools that I'm going to be providing are not um, something that requires insurance. I, I wanted to make something that was super accessible and affordable and, and free because I think that's a huge, a huge lack in the community now, everything costs so much. Um, But I I just continued to evolve, like, um, you know, I think getting through that, like getting sober, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. That's the hardest thing I'm ever gonna do. Like I, I already know it. I've already climbed the tallest mountain. It doesn't mean that I'm not gonna like climb other mountains. But like, if I was able to do that, I can fucking do anything. And when I got that mentality in my mind, like, I think people ask me now, like, yeah, like, did you think that you would be doing all this stuff and helped build this, um, you know, amazing app that helps people or the community or now I'm writing a fucking book? Like, I don't even have a college degree who wants to read my book. LOL. Um, you know, um,
0: I do. <laughs> I'm gonna buy it. <laughs> well, I need to. I need it. to. Like,
1: I need to. I need to read through it uh, myself, like all of it together as a chunk. But um, I, I think for me, like, and I think for so many of us, um, when you do finally reach that threshold, and when you do, you know, like, and it takes it takes time. You know, like it, you don't get the kind of confidence that I feel I have now in my recovery overnight. And again, there's no time limit on it. For me, it's about putting in the work because sobriety and recovery are different. And I think a lot of people confuse the two. And that's why I'm very, very, um, specific about neuro linguistics. Like I, I choose recovery because a I'm in recovery from lots of things. So I'm not trying to go down this list all the time, right? Recovery kind of is this umbrella for me of I'm recovering from my OCD and that's not something that's ever going to go away. I'm recovering or consider myself recovered from an alcohol use disorder. I consider myself recovered from my substance abuse disorder. I'm currently working on my eating disorder and body dysmorphia, you know, and I'm working on other things. Like I will always, for me, I imagine I will probably always be in a form of recovery. Because I have a uh, genetic, actual, real (laughs) mental health issues. And then B, I had damaged my brain from all the drugs and the alcohol use, although I had a short, but very brilliant career, you know, I retired early. So I think, you know, drinking from 15 to 23, I was lucky it wasn't a 20, 30, 40 year career. But I did a lot of damage in that time with that combination of drugs and with the things I would do with hitting my head, getting concussed, getting in fights and stuff. Um, And there are are real neurological problems that I have to deal with the consequences of. Um, But I choose recovery. And I say this too, because I know lots of people with lots of sober time or abstinent time or alcohol free time, and they're still fucking assholes. Or they, or they're still worried about what everybody else is doing, or they're still, you know, taking everybody else's inventory, so to speak, you know. And and they're like, to me, I didn't get sober to be the same person. I didn't, I didn't stop drinking and stop using using drugs to be that person. I wanted to be a better, higher version of myself. And, and in order to do that, you have to do transformative work. You have to look at yourself in the mirror, and you have to do your shadow work you to go. These are the parts of me that I don't like. And again. It's like the, the little Spider-Man meme, like you, I'm the problem. No, you're the problem. Mm-hmm. It's all me. Like you're probably the fucking problem. And I'm not, and I'm not invalidating people who have trauma, myself included. Right. But at some point you have to decide, am I going to be a victim of circumstance or am I going to be a fucking warrior that pushes out of this shit? Because there are plenty of people who had it as bad as me. There are plenty of people who had it worse and there are plenty of people who had it easier. But it's kind of this really good analogy that my friend Adam gave. And he said, basically, you know, like recovery is this mountain and we're all just climbing it and trying to get to the top. And some people can take the elevator, right? Some people have a seemingly easier road to recovery. Some of us have to like belay up. Some of us get to rock climb. Some people have to fucking free climb solo like that crazy dude with no ropes and no help you know, and they're, and they're coming up bloody. And like, that was probably me, like just belaying the side, like probably fell down, like tumbled down a few times, whatever. But the point is like, let's just get to the top and then help the other people try to get up, get up, like, don't worry and stop bitching that you didn't get to take the fucking elevator. That wasn't your journey, whatever higher power you have, whatever the for me, it's like the universe, like that, the universe, that wasn't your journey. Like, it's this whole comparison game. And in general, I think it's a problem, right? Like with social media and just everything, it's the highlight reels. It's also one of my problems with like sober Instagram that I'm trying to change with soberish. It's like, it's not always super glamorous. It's not a game to everybody. It's not this perfect picture-esque lifestyle. Yeah, it's way better probably than we're doing now, but you're still gonna fucking have shit days and stuff. And it, but it's, again, it's just stay in your own fucking lane. (laughs) Like if you want, if you really want to recover and get to a place where, and where I am, where it's like, yeah, I've had drinks in the last seven years. I even, and I'm very open about it. Like while I was in Ohio, uh, for me and after doing work on it, what I realized was a, it was a little bit of boredom. Uh, and, but B actually for me, it was my way of being able to facilitate my eating disorder. I have orthorexia, which is an uncommon, it's not an uncommon eating disorder, but it's something it's a newer, uh, newer name, which is basically you have a fear of eating unhealthy. You have an obsession with eating clean. And when you don't eat clean, you punish yourself with over exercising, with not eating, with purging. Um, And I'm very, I'm very open about it. Like, I'm. It's still something I'm struggling with. I think as a 30 year old woman, like I grew up with American Idol or like America's Next Top Model and low rise jeans and Paris Hilton. Like, you know, what do you mean? I don't expect to be fucking a double zero. Like, that's what's ingrained in my brain. So I'm unlearning all of these things. And when I was able to drink, and I, you know, I in Ohio it was easy because here. I have my whole group of sober friends. I have all the, these people keeping me accountable all the time. You know, I had the support system. I didn't have a reason to drink. Like I, I knew immediately when I got back here that this would not be something that I kept doing. But in Ohio, it was like, I got to like pretend to not be me, not be Kayla from a thousand hours dry, not be Kayla from reframe. Like sometimes I, I questioned my own recu- I will be completely honest as I always am. Like there were times that I questioned my sobriety because I was like, am I being sober for myself or am I doing it? Because this is the, the person that I'm supposed to be to people because I have a podcast or because I'm this thought leader in the space. And this is what people expect from me. And I'm like, you know what, again, like, that's not a reason to be in recovery, you know, like you need to be in it for you. Um, And I, and I just kind of used Ohio as this like experiment for myself of like, what do I want? Because, you know, I, again, when you talk about transitions, right, like I was in this place where I was really unhappy with my work. I was waking up every day going, oh my God, (laughs) I literally need an excuse not to get on this meeting. I have such horrible cognitive dissonance working here. I was in a really unhealthy relationship with another person who is unfortunately still in active addiction and is not ready to change, and we broke up, and it, it completely separated my life, this was somebody I thought I was going to be married to, we have, or had a dog together, we were living together, we were, we are basically married, you know, and I had to pick up everything, and move across the country, and move in with my parents at 30 years old, and then I quit my job, because I was like, I can't do this anymore, <laughs> like, I I am, I'm so unhappy, and I should not be, Um, and then I was also writing this book, You know, and I, and I just was like, I could not, I I was just like, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) And Kevin, the sober gender was just like, you know, your life's just kind of like burned to the ground, Kayla. And I was like, thank you for that observation, (laughs) dick. And he's like, no, 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 but it's an opportunity because you, you get to start from scratch. And I was like, word. And that's what I did. And I I kind of reevaluated everything. I was like, who do I want to be? Do I want to keep working in the sobriety industry? Do I even want to fucking write this book? Like, I I really, really took a a hard look at myself and asked, like, is this what I want? Or am I doing it to please other people? Or do I feel obligated? Like, it just... And again, like I said, I found myself drinking on the weekends to facilitate boredom, which... Now it's just for me, like this whole other world, because I had never drank out of boredom before. Like that was just not ever my thing. And I didn't really understand people who did. And now it has allowed me to empathize with this whole other group of people who don't self-medicate, but who have this habitual drinking problem that before I was just like, well, just, just stop. You know, like you're not like me or you can't stop, but it it becomes when you're and. And again, I think this is problematic. As you guys know, like I was in the small town in Ohio. I didn't have my normal, you know, community. I didn't have my normal gyms. I, the toolkit that I created for myself was very barren. That's not to say I didn't have my meditation. That's not to say I didn't have anything. It's not an excuse. But again, it was like this, this research that I got to do for myself and an understanding of like, wow, you know what? Like it really does matter your environment really does matter. And your support system really does matter. And keeping yourself busy and having hobbies and and finding purpose outside of drinking really does matter because when all those things are taken away, it's much more available to you. And so what I found was I, I found myself in this place where I would have a drink or two on the weekend And it wasn't to self-medicate and it wasn't for the old reasons that I used to, but for me, it was almost to facilitate my, my eating disorder, because I knew if I had a drink or two, that I would be able to eat the chicken fingers that I wanted to, or I would be able to, you know, um, Ohio has lots of good food, right? So like I would be able to indulge without the normal shame that I felt with my eating disorder. Obviously, the only problem being that when I wake up the next morning, I have double the shame because I am chemically imbalanced. And now not only have I had a drink or two, which even a drink or two can, you know, put up your put off your dopamine depletion. And then I have also eaten poorly, which is not a huge deal every once in a while. But to someone like me who is working through this eating disorder, I had massive shame around it. Right. So it was like for me, it was this huge aha moment because I just couldn't figure out what I was doing because I was like, this is so not me, but having that kind of self-awareness and and growing again, just allowed me to feel like I leveled up. Like I continue to level up in my recovery. And if other people are like, well, you're not really sober, or fuck off. Like that's, I don't care. Like to me, it's so my journey. And it's like, it is, it's like, if I'm in a video game and I'm trying to figure out like how to solve to get to the next level. Like sometimes like you got to do shit that you didn't think you would. My first three years, if you had told me, Oh yeah, you're going to drink later on. I would have been like, absolutely fucking not. I am never drinking again. And then it changed. And then in the same thing, like I always disclaim myself, like, it's funny. I did this video, um, for Jubilee media. And at the time I was like very against all drugs, very against all everything, but I still disclaim myself. I said, you know what? But my opinion might change later. So if it does, who knows? And here I am. I microdose regularly every, almost every day. And it has had profound changes with my depression, with my overall anxiety. As somebody like me who has just like a very natural negative, like affect, like I just see things more negatively. And there there are people who are genetically predisposed to this. Like if you feel you are one of those people, like there's absolutely science behind it. The, there's a good book called the happiness hypothesis that talks about it and helps understand a little bit more of the chemistry. But I, again, if you had asked me years ago, Oh, like, would you be taking mushrooms? Cause it's actually not a drug I'd ever done before. Like it never tripped on them. And I don't take enough to trip. And I think that's where people like, are like, Oh, you know, it's like, no, it's literally, it takes, it took me a couple of weeks to build up similar to an antidepressant to where it was other people who noticed first, like Kayla, you're you're just, you just seem like in so much of a better place. Like your mood seems better. Like when I, when I microdose now and, and, or if I stop for a little while, then I go back, like I see the difference. It's like almost like HD versus like regular standard TV. Like the world is brighter to me. And literally, yes, I know some of that is, is the chemicals of, but, but for someone like me who like my, my depression and my OCD and whatever other chemical imbalances I have put upon myself in these years. Like, let's say I don't take my, like the last time I didn't take my antidepressants for like two weeks. And I also didn't have any microdose. Like I was very close to being checked in to an inpatient facility because of how bad and how quickly my depression can get. And for me, and and it should be proven. I mean, look at all of all of the physicians who are now implementing MDMA and ketamine and psilocybin into their practices because this shit fucking works. You know what I mean? Like you're telling me that there's something out there that can help me re like redo. I'm trying to like think of the the right word or, you know, recarve my neural pathways, neuroplasticity, you know, quicker. It's not to say that you can't do that yourself. Right. But like, this is, this is your brain. So like there's, if, if you, if, if I'm telling you, yeah, you can recover quicker legitimately. Why, why would I say no? It just doesn't make sense. And, and again, like it's not for everybody, but I'm a huge proponent and I, I've gotten a lot of my friends to try it. And it, I have never had anybody be like, you know what? I'm, I shouldn't have done that. Every person who has, tried it after I had suggested it has, um, had such like a good experience with it. Um, no, um, it's just a brand. It's technically not legal yet. So, um, I, I soon it will be actually Biden is working on it. Um, but it's, um, just a gummy. It's a psilocybin gummy that I buy from a certain brand, um, that I did a lot of research on and that I had, um, personal recommendations for. And, um, yeah, I just, I buy a few cans. They're actually local here in orange County. Um, and you can get it delivered to you anywhere. And I mean, again, it sounds kind of sketch and I'm not here like trying to push drugs on anybody, but, um, do your research. Like there's so much research out there. And I say that about anything, like do your research, do what's right for you. Talk to your doc. I talked to my psychiatrist about it. Like, I, this was not something I did lightly, right? And I got everybody's permission and I felt comfortable. And I'm so glad I did. i'm I'm so glad I've kept an open mind. Um, because it's not to say that my depression or um, my mood or anything wouldn't have wouldn't have gotten better or anything, you know, I'm constantly doing work on myself. But maybe I would have maybe it would have taken me another five years to get where I am now rather than it's been an eight month journey for me right now, you know, with the psilocybin. So it's like, if I can level up quicker, I'm going to do that. If I do, if I, I spend so much time damaging my brain, if I can use something natural to heal it, I'm going to do that. You know, like what I don't really understand the difference between that and something like an antidepressant that has similar mechanisms, but this is something literally from the earth. Like it's not made in a factory and it has been used for thousands and thousands of years, you know, for a reason. So that's just my microdosing spiel. Yeah, I'll stop.
0: <laughs> you're good. I'm glad you went into all of it because it's part of your journey and it's in Absolutely. part of, you know, I mean, why you are calling it sober-ish and because you're You are exploring different things and it's just you are at a phase of your journey that's beyond where, say, Shannon and I are. And that's okay. It's just different. you're on a different and and maybe we won't be at that at that place. And and that's okay. Like what I love about your, you know, about what you've talked about here is that it's for, you know, each person's journey is going to be unique, but we should be helping each other with whatever helps each of us throughout that journey. And that's why I can tell you the cutback track is part of the reason why um, Reframe appealed to me and why it helped me a year ago um, to where I discovered very quickly that I could not I could not moderate that that wasn't going to be. I mean, I'm looking through my app today doing some work and and uh, like because I'm on the beta testing or whatever and it's got me like it shows what my drinks were like this day a year ago and I'm like, oh my God, oh, this was a bad week a year ago, right and 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 it was only because I was given permission to be in that place that allowed me get to get to the place to where I needed to be. So you know, with all of these things that you're talking about, Um, it's so good that you're, that you're leading in a way that's very transparent and that you're, you're not claiming to have all the answers. You're just saying, Hey, like I'm a fellow traveler on the path. These are the things that I've experienced in my seven years of being in recovery. And you have expressed throughout this, that you understand why someone is in the place where they're like, absolutely not. You can't do totally. any of these things like you totally get it and you you have gratitude for the period of your life where you were in that place and so i, I think it's just what um i i really have enjoyed listening to you talk about it and shannon yeah uh, shannon wants to say one more thing go so go for it
2: um part of the reason why i continue to follow kayla and her journey is i completely agree with her philosophy and knowledge is power, and she is one of the front run- runners in making us aware of these things and letting us know, you know, what the research is, because she doesn't just do these things and just, you know, buy into somebody else's, you know, word of mouth. She actually does the research, and, um, you know, I, I'm a part of an organization up here, and I support it completely where they provide clean needles and testing kits. And I've talked to her about that before, because a lot of people don't agree with that. And I'm like, they're going to do it anyways. Let's, let's help them not die. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what all of this is about so that we can help people not die? I feel like it is. I think everything you say is awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as someone who used to run an inner city soup kitchen here in Columbus, Ohio, I can tell you, people who say those things have probably never watched somebody OD on heroin and have not seen them get narcanned and brought back to life and how, what a different, you know, like, so <laughs> I, I'm with you, Kayla, 110% on that, on that, in that regard as well. So um yeah, Kayla, this is the podcast for newly sober people who are learning to love ourselves instead of booze. What do you do to show love to yourself? What's something that Kayla Lyons does? uh, on a day-to-day basis or a week to, or just what's something that you do to show love to yourself, um, in your recovery, because I think it's so important for folks like Shannon and me, who are, who are young, younger in our recovery than, than you are to hear what is something that you do at your, at your stage of the game.
1: So right now it's a couple of different things. Um, and I'll, I'll share a, f- a few of the the tools, um, that will be in the book, um, Exclusive. Here you go. Uh, I won't give them all. There are 10. Um, and you know, I use many, many more my, again, my philosophy being like, there's never enough watering holes. Like you can always have more watering holes, like not taking away from your watering hole. I'm just building new ones for other people who might not want to use your watering hole. Um, and the same thing with tools, right? Like if you meditate and you're great at it, that's awesome. But like, that cannot be your only tool because you're going to get triggered one time in the middle of a, in a party, and a concert, in a bar, and you're not going to be able to meditate in that moment. Hate to bring it to you, but like, it's very loud, you know, like, I mean, you could try, but like, it's an awkward situation, right? Like you need to have multiple tools for multiple situations. And the way, one of the ways that I show myself love and that I practice self-care now is by having, um you know, a very hefty toolkit for my recovery. And so like one of that, and probably the most important to me is like intuitive movement, which is really just another way of saying exercise, but exercise that, that sits on me listening to my body. It's not me endlessly or like mindlessly working out just to work out. It's not me competing with the next person next to me. It's me waking up and going, you know what? I'm really excited to move my body today. I feel like, I feel like, you know, getting a sweat in or, you know what? I have been, you know, working in the strength class and I'm really excited to go in and go up in weights this time. Like it, for me, it, I transferred something that used to be this negative. Like I need to lose weight. I need to look better. It was about aesthetics. I turned that and I transformed movement, which is just so important. I mean, for your health, mental and physical and emotional, um, especially in early recovery, like it gives you endorphins and gives you dopamine, all of these things that you're lacking, especially like, I mean, I would spend hours in the gym after in my early recovery, not working out the whole time, or even just walking on the treadmill to like be outside of my house and, uh, and, have my body in movement. And again, intuitive movement can be any kind of movement, but it's just you listening to your body. Like example, today it worked out, but the two days before that I didn't because I had done something in my shoulder. I got in a motorcycle accident like about five years ago and there's still some pretty nasty scar tissue. And so sometimes if I overlift or if I you know tweak something wrong, I get massive inflammation. And Instead of what I used to do, which was just like take a bunch of leave and push through it and not listen to my body um, or what I did over COVID, I fractured my foot twice, spinning so much and not even like literally on the pain. Now I listen to my body. I have what Nikita calls body intuition. And I talk about that in my book too. It's just body awareness. It's going like, what is my body telling me right now? My body is telling me you need to rest full, like chill. So the last few days I did not work out. I, I rested, you know, I walked Winston and stuff like that, but I iced and I put the heating pad and I did things like that. And this morning I woke up and I felt fine and I was able to go and take class with two of my sober friends here. And it was awesome, you know, and I don't think I would have been able to do that had I not listened to my body because I'd probably be in massive amounts of pain right now. If I just mindlessly kept going to class to go to class, um, Another really good one that I found um, that's super easy and super accessible is sound therapy. And it's very woo-woo, but it is evidence-based. So if you are a woo-woo person, you'll love it. But if you're a science person, you'll also love it because you can go and research it. And it's about brainwaves. But you can find this on YouTube. You can find it on Spotify and you you might be familiar with it from like sound baths. So like that when you listen to the little bowl and the oh, I was like terrible, <laughs> <laughs> like you know glass version or you know when you rim put your little finger on the rim of the glass and it makes that noise. That of course is a sound, but it's a it's a form of a of a brain wave. And so when you go in and like you can type in to YouTube like alpha brainwave noises. Um, and it will bring up different kinds of sound baths or you can look up sound baths and you can listen to them um, on all these platforms. And it's a form of meditation really. But when we meditate, right? Like the whole point is to to not clear our minds. That's impossible. But it's really like to allow ourselves to watch the cars go by and not interfere with them. So to watch our thoughts and to, and to keep being present with them. And also that puts us in a different state of mind. It you know turns on our parasympathetic nervous system. It does all these things, but it does take effort and you have to practice meditation. Like in the beginning, I was so uninterested in it because I just didn't get it. But after years of doing it, I now I'm just like, okay, like I love it. But with sound therapy, you don't have to do that. You don't, it's it's something you could get into right away because you turn it on and let's say like. I interviewed this really amazing sound therapist uh, for the book. And she said, You can do like a minimum of five minutes. Like, if you don't have a lot of time and you're stressed, put on five minute alpha brainwave music or a sound bath. And what it does is it literally, your brainwaves and the music waves of the bowls of whatever sound it's usually bowls or um, chimes and things like that. They're on a certain brainwave usually the theta wave and that is the wave like right before you go to bed so like that's where your brain is in a very like deep state of rest and you're listening to that laying there listening to that or even sometimes I'll do it in the car when I'm like really stressed and I just need to like chill your brain will try and match the waves of this. And I'm probably not saying this hundred percent, right. I'm trying to explain it (laughs) in the best way possible, but again, your brain will try and match the waves of the sound. So, you know, when your waves are up here and you're like in Delta and you're like, I'm so over caffeinated and I'm anxious and like, it will bring you down in the same way that cold exposure brings down, you know, your central nervous system. Um, and you don't have to do any work, right? Like you don't have to meditate, nothing. Like you can just sit and listen and keep your, I like to keep my eyes closed and just listen to the bowls and holy shit. It's a huge game changer. Then there's other levels, right? You can go in and and go to sound baths. You can buy your own sound bowls and do it. Um, you can even just take a walk out in nature and like listen to the birds and listen to the trees moving and things like that. And that is a form of sound therapy, like nature earthing, things like that. Super woo stuff I'm getting into. Um, But I do stuff like that now. I do a lot of woo-woo shit. Like I I really do. And I was not a woo-woo person at all before. But I'm of the mindset now that I was willing to go so far and do so much to get high or to get drunk. I can make the effort. Now today to get up and make my bed and spend 10 minutes, you know, meditating or listening to a sound bath or making sure I'm getting my 64 ounces of water in my body, which is fun fact. You should be drinking about half your body weight in ounces to get all of the proper nutrients and vitamins in the right places. But again, right. If I could drink two bottles of wine in a day, plus whatever else I can drink that much water you know, it's challenging myself. Um, and it's sticking to those habits and it's reminding myself that the current routine that I'm on, even if it feels tedious, even if I'm tired, maybe I wake up late and I'm slept in and I'm like, fuck, I only have 20 minutes before my first call. It doesn't matter. I need to spend that time. Even if it's a five minute meditation versus a 10 minute one, I still always make my bed. That was something I learned in rehab. It's just like ingrained into me, right? Like, having that routine and that stability is what keeps you where you are, because I think a lot of us get overconfident. And then that's when we are at risk of backsliding right into old behaviors. So it's just keeping yourself humbled and reminding yourself, like, these are my rituals. This is what I need to be doing to stay in my recovery or to elevate my recovery and always being open to new things. Always reading, always listening to new podcasts. I love like the Huberman Lab podcast. I love the Hidden Brain podcast, always learning new things from them. Um, And then just like reading, doing a ton of reading um, because I find, again, the more you know, the harder it is to go back to do old things or think in old ways. And it also helps you just empathize with other people because when you have a deeper understanding For people, even when you haven't walked in their shoes or been in their situation, it just, it's so heavy to walk around with so much hate for other people and hate for yourself or resentment or jealousy and comparison. Like all of those things don't serve us. And I think the more you learn about yourself and the more you can learn about others and why people do what they do. Like I went through this whole phase of, of learning about psychopathy and murderers and just like the worst types of people right supposedly but even them when you have this like deeper knowledge and understanding of what happens what went wrong environmentally chemically biologically you you can just take a step back and go oh okay doesn't make it okay right but like it's just I realize like I was walking around for so long, carrying such a heavy load of like caring about all these things that I don't need to care about that didn't serve me um, and worrying about what other people were thinking and doing. And am I doing this right or whatever? At the end of the day, who fucking knows? We're all going to be dead one day, like very morbid, you know, like when you're like laying in your deathbed, you're not going to be thinking about any of this. You're going to be thinking like, did I live my life to the fullest? Did I, you know, do all the things I want to do? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. You're not gonna be thinking about like, oh fucking Trish has more time than me, that bitch. Like, did <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it just it, it's so, it's so petty and so small. Like we're literally these tiny little ants in this huge fucking galaxy. Like it's it's crazy. Like, and we just need to stop worrying about things that don't matter.
0: This has been an awesome conversation. I am so grateful to you, Kayla, and to Shannon for being here um, with us. Um, you give given me a great a great gift on the week of my, because uh, this coming week, I not only hit a year um, alcohol-free, but I, it'll be my birthday too, a couple of days after that. So it's like a big a big week coming up, and I'm so excited to get to publish this because since I started this little podcast eleven months ago, I was a month into my month into alcohol free adventure and said, "Fuck it, I'm starting a podcast." <laughs> like I, I'm going to up the ante on myself, right? So that if I so that if I if I mess up this recovery thing, that I'm going to have to tell everybody. But uh, ever since then, ever since I found out about who Kayla Lyons is, I'm like. I got to have Kayla on the show. And so I'm so excited. Like, thank you for bearing with me for six months of like our mutual shenanigans that have been going on and we figured this out. And I'm so glad that Shannon, a big Kayla fan was able to be here and help contribute to the conversation. Um, What's your, what's your parting shot, Kayla? What's the last thing you two would want to say if you had one thing to say, if you, if you were on your deathbed, here's uh, my, this was actually my season two question that I asked everyone, or maybe my season one, I think I used to ask, I'm in season three now. Cause I'm in kind of a big, I'm kind of a big deal. Right. Um, like season one question was, if you were on your deathbed, what would you ask? Um, what would you, what would you say to people? What was the last thing that you, if you had one more chance to say, if you only had a 32nd reel left on Instagram, what would you say? so that's it. That's a deep one. It is. It's a hard question. I stopped asking it after that season for a reason. I asked the uh, self-love question instead, but you're getting both because you're such a big guest. You're going to get two final questions. And that's the very last question I'm going to ask you.
1: I think on my deathbed, my advice to the young people (laughs) would be, (laughs) well, hopefully young. Um, I think it would be uh, first and foremost, like Whatever you do in life, anything you do, ask yourself two questions. And the first one is, what is my intention behind doing this? And the second would be, is this serving the goals that I have for myself at this moment? Um, and I've been following those rules and asking myself those questions around everything for a very long time. And it's been steering me in a really good direction. Like I said, never thought I'd be where I am today. Um, but it keeps me honest, um, especially when you're asking about your intention. Um, My second would be, is what you're doing essential right now? And there's a book called Essentialism and it's, it's a, it's a way of life and it it has helped me change mine. And uh, it's a basic way of saying, right. Like for many of us, I think we're overachievers. We base for me, I, the way that I grew up to and, and being in a military family and things like that, like I base a lot of my self-worth on my productivity and how much I was giving to the world. And even sometimes now I have to make sure, right. I'm always, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough for others? Um, and sobriety, um, and recovery in this, com- in this community. Um, but I put so many things on my plate, um and this book essentialism really has taught me to uh, to ask myself like is this essential to the goals again like and when i say goals like it could be like your personal financial professional whatever interpersonal goals um but whatever that next step for you is that next evolution that you're trying to reach um is what you're doing serving that purpose is it helping you get towards that Is it a blockade? Is it kind of slowing your time down? And essentially it's asking you to like trim the fat off of what you're doing. And that's helped me a lot as somebody who likes to be productive or who likes to practice avoidance through being really busy. Um, It's helped me slow down a lot. And just in general, ask myself, like, do I need to be doing this or is this, or am I avoiding something like, again, going back, what is my intention behind actually doing this? Um, yeah,
0: that's awesome. So it's the two questions were, um, what is my intention behind this? And is it essential? Did I get it right? There it is. Ladies and gentlemen across the globe sober family and recovery families everywhere. This is the one and only Kayla Lyons. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, normally I sign off by saying, cause it's I kissed alcohol goodbye. I normally say goodbye alcohol. And I go, hello life. It's very cheesy. But instead of that and your honor, we will say goodbye alcohol or we'll say goodbye addiction and hello life. How's that? Because you don't necessarily, because maybe maybe your path is that you don't have to say goodbye to alcohol. Or maybe you said goodbye to alcohol for a long time, and maybe it's back in in some way. Maybe you're soberish. So if you would like to join me, then you're welcome to do the cheesy uh, farewell thing. But thank you for joining us on this episode of I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. Kayla, Shannon, Al, Spruce, and I all send you our best. And we say goodbye, addiction, and Ah. hello, life, and much love to you all and peace.